What do we do? Exactly give you what you need to hear on crucial and deep topics no one wants to talk about. We believe that if we could touch one person a day through our efforts as a team united, then that person will be able to attack that beast as well with someone else. And thus the fight draws strength through unity. God bless. You are now listening to the Why Is It Like That podcast, a mental health podcast where we discuss the crippling effects and stories of PTSD, anxiety, depression, and suicide. The views and opinions of our guests are not our own, but merely their side of the story related to trauma, addiction, and mental health. We are real, raw, and uncut. The stories you hear are not easy to hear. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Trey Trevino, alongside your other host, Heath Garcia. Together, we have over 30 years experience in the United States Navy and have seen firsthand effects of mental health on our society and ask the question, why is it like that? We share your stories to provide freedom and comfort to the people of this world, that there is hope, that there is peace, and that we will all be okay. But first, I'd like to start by taking a moment of silence for the ones we've lost to this mind battle, to our military that we have lost, and to the soldiers, sailors, marines, coasties, and airmen that are deployed in harm's way, away from their families, missing their child being born, birthdays, anniversaries, and even deaths of loved ones. Not what y'all been waiting for. The Why Is It Like That podcast. Let's get it. Acceptance. This is where the rubber hits the road. This is where everything starts out. You have to accept you have an issue. You have to accept a diagnosis of your mental health providers, of your family, your friends. You have to accept it. This is the start. So before we begin on the actual meat and potatoes of the topic, I would like to say that we're sponsored by North End Fitness Center, a huge contributor to our podcast. Thank you very much for all of what you do, uh, for our active duty community, for our retirees, and for our wounded warriors. Uh, Windermere Oak Harbor, I'd like to thank you for all your generous sponsorship as well, for the equipment that you help us get. Uh, through your donations, and we look forward to your future sponsorship. Um, and I would also like to give a special thanks uh, that have given us some donations as well as Tonight Out Tattoo and Regina DeLeon Guerrero. Serena Harris as well. And thank you to all our viewers, listeners, fans. Please pass the word. So let's dive right in. Trey, we're going into acceptance. So let's get it. Acceptance is the first step to stripping off the blindfold of your specific and unique problem. I had many chances uh, to take off my blindfold in my past, um, but I fu- I refused to accept it. And we, we're going to, you know, talk about the stigma behind acceptance as well. But my chances that I had to take off my blindfold were back in 2006 when I came back originally from Iraq. Um, I was really spotty in life when I came back. My wife told me, in 2009 or so that I was a different person when I came back originally from Iraq. I wasn't the same guy. Um, I probably knew something was wrong, but instead of correcting my course of action, seeking help, I decided to ignore it. And that just compounded things. Um, back in 2011, more recently, um, after Afghanistan, again, I had, I was sitting in a counselor's office 
in Japan and the therapist looked at me and my wife because I thought it was a marriage issue. So did she, um, they said, Hey, you know, I don't think you have a problem in your marriage at all. And she pointed at me and looked at me and she said, I think that you have a problem with PTSD and I can't diagnose it because I'm not specialized in that area. I'm a marriage therapist, but I'm going to send you over to Atsugi, Japan to talk to a licensed clinical psychologist on PTSD. And that scared the crap out of me. Yeah, I bet it did. I heard some new. Yeah, I heard PTSD. I was like, no, they're going to kick me out of the military. And, you know, that's the first thing that comes to our head. That's why we don't want to go see anything. It's because first thing that pops up in our head is, oh, they're going to kick me out. Absolutely. And I remember my wife telling me, you know, just go for us, you know. And I was just like, all right, I'll go. And I took that step and I walked into that office, you know, and um, I was sitting there and they were trying to give me like EMDR treatment or whatever. And I was like one of the first patients in that Sugi that was actually going to start doing it. Like they had like a whole form to fill out about, you know, a disclaimer, like this is a new process and yada, yada, yada. You know what I mean? So it was just coming out, new technology, new way of treating people that I could have took advantage of. And, and I sitting in there and I felt like a, like an experiment. Yeah. That's what they're, that's what they are. Experiments. Like, it's not the same, but like with Melanie, every time she goes through a different treatment, they're like, well, it's going to be an experimental trial. A clinical trial is what they like to call it. Right. But that scared the crap out of me again. First thing in my head was, okay, experiment or, you know, clinical trial. Like in that case, all right, that means uncertainty and uncertainty means uncertainty, uncertainty, in my career, uncertainty for my family. I didn't work this hard, come this far to get kicked out now. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't work this hard. I didn't go through the crap I did as a child. I didn't get kicked out of school, get back into school, graduate finally, get into the service and spend eight years of my life at that point or nine years to say, oh, fuck it, you know, let them kick me out um, or be homeless or couldn't provide for my family. And, you know, I had a, a child, you know what I mean? And at that point, when you have children, it's a lot different. Yeah. Cause it's not just your mouth you're feeding. You know, I can go hungry for two, three days. I've done it before, maybe a week, you know, I'm just drinking water and shit. But when you have children and you see your children crying or you anticipate them crying or going hungry, it's, it's the last thing you ever want to think about. So I walked out of the clinic, left the form there and didn't even come back. Fuck this. You can go back to marriage therapy, none of that shit. Because marriage therapist told me there's nothing wrong with my marriage, so you're good. You know what I mean? It's just with me. And I was like, well, I guess I just got to fucking control myself better. You know what I mean? But everything's good. So in 2013, this was another excruciating point. Um, I just got to, well, I was just leaving Japan. And this was like in December 2013. So right at the cusp of 2014. Um, my wife and I started falling apart bad and again, went to marriage therapy in Coolville, right? And at this point, the therapist was like, she kicked us out on the first session. She was like, you guys need to go home and sit down as a couple and decide what it is you want to do, i.e. separation, divorce, or fix your marriage. Cause right now I can't fix you. Cause like, you don't know. Yeah. Because we're, we're just that fucked up and I didn't understand that I was like man you know what I mean like what the fuck we were just 
we're just talking in the car and we were, we're just fine. You know, like how did things get this fucked up this quick, you know, or why now? That was a big thing when I put on chief, like a few months later, in 2014, I mean, she almost left me then, you know, and we started growing distant and things like that. Um, I started seeking validation from other women, you know, behind her back. And it's just a whole like tidal wave of bullshit started flowing. And I hate to say it like this, but if it weren't for me getting shot, um, that would have really, I would have been divorced. I'd have been divorced. I would have had nothing. I'd have probably been in some apartment somewhere getting liquored up, hating life, hating people. You know what I mean? Just So tell me why, why you think that getting shot is what saved your marriage, your marriage. Because I was in a vulnerable state physically. Um, I had essentially the bottom right leg almost removed by a bullet. It was hanging on by threads. My tibia, my fibia were completely shattered. My arterial damage in my leg was considerable. I mean, I had no circulation for 48 minutes in my leg, in my lower leg. My nerves were damaged, so I couldn't feel anything below my ankle. Um, I couldn't walk. I couldn't do any of that. I was hospitalized for about 29 days, roughly, in a hospital bed. Seven surgeries later, six or seven, I can't even remember so many surgeries I had with that. Um, Countless trips to the hospital after that. But making a long story short, shorter, um, I saw how she stuck in there with it. And the whole time that I went through that, I saw her face, you know, I saw her heart. And I said, you know, if my wife's going to do this with me, why can't I do what I need to do and take that step? And I still, believe it or not, I still wasn't going to do it. Like I thought, okay, well, I could come out of this shit. There's something inside my head said I can, it was like the, the animal instinct in a human being, if that makes any bit of sense whatsoever, was to still defending myself. Like, you know what I mean? I'm not going to allow myself to become weak. Um, but then I was referred to a PTSD psychologist named Kelly and he right away broke that wall down. I think the first session broke me down because the person that I tried to save, he was also his therapist. Mm, Rough. Very rough. And I sat down, I sat down there um, on his chair and I remember the exact words he said. He said, if you, if he was sitting here right now, he would be telling you that you need to get help. And this is the best place for it. Boom. I bet you that hit you hard, huh? Well, yeah, it did because he also referenced that he used to sit in the same spot Mm -hmm. same chair and I just lost him he was dead um but that was my first step to acceptance and stripping off that blindfold of my specific and unique problem and that should be everyone not my situation but that there's always a first step that you need to do to strip off that blindfold of your specific and unique problem what about you Trey I mean I you know I you say you don't have PTSD, right? Mm-hmm. However. I've never been diagnosed with it. Right. However, you do have anxiety. You do have other stuff that mm-hmm. you've been diagnosed with. Yeah. So can you tell the listeners a little bit about your story that way? And they can kind of comprehend because your story is different than mine. And that's that's good for everybody else to hear because not a, not everybody's going to be listening to this podcast right now talking mm-hmm. about PTSD. So what do you got? No, I mean, I've always had. 
as as long as I can remember, I've always been a warrior. Like with anything, I'd mm-hmm. always worry. I remember um, one time when I was small. I remember I was home, and they're like, "We're gonna rush your wella, your grandmother, to the hospital for open heart surgery." And I was, I started freaking out in a panic. And I started fucking throwing up. Okay. And I was young, and I didn't know why in the hell like I acted that way. Was that the first traumatic thing you've ever seen or heard? No, I remember seeing my, and this just got brought to light whenever I went to one of my hypnotherapy sessions with uh, my tia, my aunt. Um, I think I was like six years old and they came out through hypnotherapy. She had an episode where she like freaked out and fell, like went out and everybody was like, they didn't know what the hell was going on. She had like a um, diabetes attack or something like her sugar went way too low Oof. and everybody was like screaming and stuff. And that freaked me out that, I mean, going to funerals. Yeah. Cause that's every kid's first thing of death. Yeah. It? it was like people screaming in the restroom and people freaking out. Um, my Wella's sister died and she was, I had never seen my Wella act like that before. Yeah. Things like that. And then getting older, my parents divorcing really fucked me up. Like I think more than it should have. And that affected me a lot. I'd cry a lot for no reason. I'd freak out. Then I started to rebel. I started to develop this anger issue out of nowhere. Like even as a teenager having relationships, I'd always be mad. I mean, I think when I first met Melanie, we were in our 20s and I was drunk and I took out my shotgun. I don't know what I was going to do with it to myself, but I took out a shotgun and she freaked out. And sometimes we argue, we talk. She's like, you've always been this way. For as long as I can remember, you've always been like this. Yes. You get set off. And I thought joining the military, I was going to get better. And I did for a good good amount of time. I was better. And then whenever we found out that she had cancer, that pretty much destroyed our chance of getting out and going home. Did my five years going home, going to go back to our family. Everything was going to be gravy. Everything was set up. And it's not Melanie's fault. It was cancer's fault. Yeah. And I accepted it at first, a lot of it, or at least I thought I did. But what I did was just grab it and harness it and put it somewhere else. And the more bad news we'd get and the more bad news, I think it started amounting to me till I started fucking breaking. I want to say, sorry, like in the last three years, it's really twisted me the fuck up. Like I went to a, a fucking... All-star sailor, sailor of the year, fucking making chief in eight years to fucking getting AdSept. Well, you ain't AdSept yet. Well, I'm saying recommended for AdSept, yeah. going to mass and all that. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like that, I would have never thought in a million years that'd be me doing no. it as a chief. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it's just fucked me up and it's still, we're still living in it and I'm doing the best I can with it. But I'm talking anxiety attacks, like driving and freaking out. Where I can't drive, and Melanie's telling me to pull the fuck over. We're in San Diego. She's like, pull over so I can drive. And she drives me to Balboa because I don't know what. I thought I was getting a heart attack. We went there, and they're like, no, you just have, like, you had a real bad anxiety attack, a real bad one. So I would get those where I just start shaking. I get sweats, and I can't think. Like, panic attacks, anxiety attacks, that shit's real. Oh, yeah. And it sucks. Mm -hmm. And it takes a while to get over. And once once you come off of it, Mm -hmm. you're, like, so exhausted. Your body's like done. I mean, I went from that high, that high end part of it to down to the low part where, and I still do now. I take a lot of naps, but just staying in bed all day, tired as fuck, not being able to do nothing. And I knew that was depression. And I knew I had a lot about drinking every fucking day. And Melanie would tell me about it. She'd be like, there's something wrong with you. And I would take offense to that. I'm like, what do you mean there's something wrong with me? Don't worry about me. I know myself better than anybody else. And at first she would let us slide off like, okay, whatever, whatever. Until she was like, you're going to go talk to somebody like you're going to, there is something wrong with you. And then they said, you're just, you're having a hard time 
coping. You have high anxiety disorder. You have depression. So a whole gambit of things whole came out. A whole fucking gambit of things, yeah, that said, like, you're all fucked up pretty much. Would you agree that your initial diagnosis of a mental illness can leave you questioning whom you are as a person? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I kind of had an idea, but not like straight up like, hey, we're going to put you on medicine. Yeah, well, I think that acceptance is that first step, though, the stripping off that blindfold. What happened to you? Because all of a sudden it makes you it makes everything real. Yes. Like for me, when uh, Kelly told me that I had severe PTSD and anxiety, it made all the past experiences of where I've always questioned, is there something wrong with me? Or, you know, why did I react that way? Or why can't I stop yelling? Or why, you know what I mean? Or why do I get so angry? It made all that stuff have a label. And I think with the label said, okay, that is the problem. Now it gave me something to attack to make things better. I know that initial diagnosis of a mental illness can make, make you feel lonely. I felt very lonely uh, with nobody able to relate to me. You know, because all of a sudden I'm by myself. Yeah, you feel like, oh, everybody else is living this happy ass life. Everything's fine and dandy. This shit's just me. Yeah. Now I'm talking to a psychologist and guess what? I can't go back to work and tell anybody about this because chances are I'm going to walk back into my shop and they already know that, oh, he was at behavioral health. Hey, he's fucking crazy. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's the fucking what I think is going to go around. Right. Um, but what's funny, though, is I did a little bit of data research. And interestingly enough, when we look at statistical data, according to uh, the starting point, behavioral health care, 2019, you'll never guess exactly how many people in the United States are currently uh, suffer suffering from a mental illness right now. Oh, well, it wouldn't surprise me now, but back then it sure in the hell would have. 19 percent of the United States, which is around 43 million Americans. Yeah. Don't they say like half the United States is on some type of fucking medicine? Yeah. Mental health medicine. Big pharma, right? Hell yeah. SSRIs for life. <laughs> no, but but no shit. Just the initial diagnosis and that lonely feeling that kicked kicked me right in the balls. You know what I mean? But then that initial if I didn't take that initial step of acceptance of my issue, I wouldn't have started working on it. My wife for sure would have been gone. I don't know how my visitation and things like that would be with my kids because no good parent or no, you know, is going to want to be around their kids if all they can do is yell at them. Yeah. Or in vice versa, no good parent is going to want to have their kids hang out with the other parent who's abusive. Mm -hmm. So that acceptance saved, essentially saved my family. And I wasn't out of the woods yet. I had a lot of proving to do and I'm still... I mean, it takes a while, you know, you, you so, treat people like shit for shit, 10 years of your life with them, you know, or no matter a considerably amount of time. And it takes that much longer to repair the damage. Um, I remember that I related to the feeling of not knowing who I was to a degree that the person that I became or to know so well was somewhat of a lie. Yeah. Because of myself, like all my mannerisms, all my actions, who the hell was I? Yeah, like growing up, you have all these morals that you think that you live by. You're like, I will never cross those lines. I'll never cross that barrier because this is what's right and what's wrong. And then you slowly find yourself skipping over those things. Like, ah, you push that wall a little bit further out. Keep pushing it out, pushing it out. So you're like, what the fuck? I'm 100 miles away from where I set that line. How the hell did I get here? Yeah. 
accepting, you know, just accepting the fact uh, that, that we're different, seeing everything in a different lens makes me feel like that. It just, it made me feel like a stranger to myself, which is contributing to the loneliness of what I was also feeling because I already felt by myself. And if you ask me, that was the cocktail that can lead to a suicidal ideation or a suicidal attempt, feeling of loneliness. How do, how do you feel about that, Trey? I mean, do you, do you see things like that? I mean, did you feel lonely when you were diagnosed? Yeah, I think, I don't think I've ever had a attempt. I think the only attempt would have ever been when I was like 19 mm-hmm. or coming back from a fucking, or I might as well, I was on pills and I was drunk, but we were coming back and I ran out of gas. We ran out of gas, come back from Corpus Christi, back to Alice. And I was on a road trying to wave people down. And I just got this fucking thought in my head that I was just going to lay in the middle of the highway. I closed my eyes and I was just counting. And I said, if it does, I'm going to count to a certain number, just get up. It's playing with my life. And it still freaks me out now that I think about it. And I did that. I remember counting, counting, and I got up and there was no cars. Mm-hmm. And I walked back. And after that, there was like a slew of cars passing by. And one of them was a fucking cop. Oh. Passed by and they put us in jail that night. But that was like an ideation I think I was trying to follow through with. And then I guess trying to get myself drunk enough to just not wake up. I've done before a couple times. Which is very dangerous. You know what I mean? And, and that's a very violent way to go, to be honest with you. I think that the way I chose to to try to end my life was a very violent way to go. Um, like we're making a statement with it or something. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Well, of course. I think that's what suicide is, is making a statement. Um, and if we could stop right before that happens, like for those of that, for those of us that have followed through with suicide if they can kind of reverse the time back and look on a third lens, like a third party lens about how it actually affects the family, the friends and the loved ones and everybody of those involved. It's ridiculous how negative the effects it is. Um, but without acceptance, you know, and then once we accept, we, we hear that info and we accept now we have a mental illness. There's a feeling of being robbed of our life that, we just want our lives back too at the same time, you know, because I know when I f- was diagnosed, I, I looked back that whole time. Like I told you all the way back to 2006 and this was in 2017, I was diagnosed and looking back at 2006, I was like, man, I just want my life back from when I was first married to without all the trauma. If I could have skipped everything, I would have, mm-hmm. but I can't because then I still got to think, well, shit. Look at all those things that happened as a kid. Would I really want to redo my whole life? And the fact of the matter is no. And that's an irrational response is when we sit there and we say, hey, I want to rewind my whole life or I want to end it because I feel like a lie. I feel like a fraud. You know what I mean? Who's going to accept me? Who's going to want to be around me now, now that I have accepted the fact that I am mentally ill? It's funny, but then you start going into your triggers and things like that for me anyway, for PTSD. And I figured out that all my irrational responses to stimuli that go on, like children crying, arguments, traffic, laundry on the floor, shit, my shit not being up kept right. You know what I mean? A dirty dish on the fucking counter, crumbs on the counter, um, screws falling out of shit that I, you know what I mean? I felt like something was broken. You know what I mean? That I had to fix. It's like the responses that I had to those things now 
when looking back at it became irrational because I'd combat back in bouts of anger, bouts of rage, yelling, screaming, arguing, isolation, you know, overboard shit like you, like saying being depressed, like I couldn't change anything. So I'd take long naps and, and things like that to get away from my surroundings and the, and the stuff that I was going through. Yeah. Those irrational responses do become a, a normal. You think that they're normal because that's what your brain is telling you what to do. It goes like with that fight or flight, everything is fight or flight at the time. I think I still have that problem today. Like with kid, like with my kids just being loud, like if I'm in the house and they're being loud playing the iPads or, or in the car and they're, it just, I don't know, gets something in me. And then I have to think like, they're just kids. You know what I mean? what did you do when you were a kid? It's just hard to accept that and be like, Hey, everybody just keep it down. Like, I just want everything quiet and chill. I don't like all this noise. Like that's, that's why I don't like going out in town. Cause there's so much fucking people. Everybody wants to talk to you. And yeah. And that's another reason I isolate myself whenever I'm depressed and shit. You were like, Oh, I want to talk. I want to help. I don't want to talk to nobody. <laughs> right. Um, talking about that fight or flight system. I mean, you know, we learn by taking in data, like if we look at our brains like a computer processor, right? And we kind of adapt our behavior to certain types of behaviors, data that we receive. Now, when we have mental illness or diagnoses, there's things that trigger us, which are negative responses that trigger that fight or flight system. Um, but it's supposed to help respond or make us able to respond better to trauma or to things that are dangerous. That's what that sole purpose of the amygdala is. It's like drinking a cup of coffee, or not drinking, but say you're pouring a cup of coffee, and it's hot. You're holding the glass. The coffee starts to overflow. It burns your hand. Mm -hmm. Now, once you heal up, say another three, four months down the road, you're pouring a cup of coffee. Coffee's starting to get high up on the cup, right? Are you going to sit there and do the same mistake you did last time? Or is that amygdala response going to kick in and say, hey, Move take your, your hand away, hand, stupid, yeah. right? Because mm -hmm. you already got burned before. These become normal responses to us. And irrational responses become normal. So when my wife would tell me, why are you always yelling? And I tell her, I'm not always yelling. That's an actual correct statement to me. In your head, you think you're not yelling. Right, because it's a normal response to me. Mm -hmm. And I think that. If we, it, once the, the blinder comes off and we're able to label things, like I said, with that mental illness and say, okay, this is the problem. A lot of things start coming out when you do your work and you find, yes, yelling is one of my irrational responses. Going outside and working all day in the yard just to, just to stay away from my family. That is an irrational response. Taking, you know, or trying to be a neat freak about everything and telling everybody you need to do this or that and acting like a drill sergeant in the house to get shit done. That is an irrational response to what I want done, right? Mm -hmm. Which is all I want the kids to do is pick your stuff up. Am I going to get more honey with, you know what I mean? Bees with honey than with vinegar? Obviously. So all, all important things, you know what I mean? That we need to look at that come with acceptance. Um, Certain traumas that are severe on and on again, you're they just happen on and on. It's like a, a different type of overload that we don't see. So it's like taking a vet in Afghanistan. There's so many sensory overload things that are going on in a convoy. Right. And I'm just going to put the convoy thing and then we'll, I'll let you talk about something Trey too, that kind of, you know what I mean? Where, where you can relate. Um, 
but you're driving in a convoy. You have seven Vicks. You have 28 guys, roughly 32 if you have packs to watch over. You have seven cruiser weapons that are in different directions at all times. There are kajillions of people walking around on the streets. You're going past big dumpster on the left, red car on the right. You know what I mean? Smell. You could smell the curry and the things like that out there. And You know what I mean? And then boom, right? Ringing in your ears, bloody nose, pain. You get taken away from that situation. Now you're driving down five years later in Seattle and you see a red car and you hit the brakes and you, you slam the brakes on and just come to a skidding halt. Why is it like that? It's something you're used to. Something you saw. You're well, living, reliving the same thing. Right. And the problem with that is it was a trigger that you couldn't even see coming because there were so many stimuli going on at the time of that incident that sometimes things you smell, taste, touch, or anything like that or see comes back around. And without accepting the fact that you have PTSD, in my case, and that you'll never get that a lot of that stuff is over with. Yes, there is a red car, but that red car is not going to blow up. That red car is in the United States of America driving down the freeway with some pissed off civilian and it cussing at you because you're not driving fast enough. That that paper bag or that box or that dumpster is not going to blow up. The person that's walking in the hospital that's wearing a hood, you know what I mean? Because they're Muslim, not because they're a terrorist, but because they're a Muslim, is not going to turn around and shoot up the whole hospital. Uh, I, feel, I feel what you're saying right now. Like for me, it's not, it's not like that because I wasn't put in those situations, but I will say living in the same thing every day, the amounts of stress of, is my wife going to die? Am I going to be on my own with my kids? Am I a good enough parent? Why am I as a caregiver for her? Why am I not doing good enough? Getting in trouble with the Navy, all these things just start compounding on me. And I think I can bear them and I don't let them out. And I just break, I like completely break either by getting, you know, those anxiety attacks I'm talking about or getting depressed and sleeping in or going on fucking four or five day benders. I break. Yeah. Like that's really even healthy for you. Oh yeah. Real healthy. And that's, and without accepting that that's my reality right now, that's always going to happen. So I think in a way me and Melanie have at least the cancer piece have accepted this a lot. Like we get a, she gets a scan and I'm already ready for bad news. What do I show? I show it's going to be all right. Everything's going to be all right. Don't worry about it. She's like, you always do this. Are you ever worried? I'm like, hell yeah, I'm worried. But I don't want to show that because I feel like it's going to trigger me and her both to fucking be in a bad mood. Like this whole fucking AdSip thing. I haven't really wanted to be talking about it. Like with Melanie, she's like, have you heard anything? I'm like, no, can you please stop asking? Like my parents, have you heard anything? No. Like I tell them, I'll let you know whenever it happens. And Melanie's like, well, what are the percentages and stuff? I'm like, that don't even matter. It's up to one man and his board. And I don't like to bring it up. I don't, I don't want to think about it because it's, it's the inevitable. It's going to happen. And I feel like the more I think about it, the more I worry about it, it's just going to fucking trigger those worries in me and make me crash. So right now I'm like, I'm living every day, accepting that that is my fate and accepting it for what it is and just living every day. As it comes, because if not, I'm going to break the whole, I'm going to, if that's all I'm constantly worrying about, it's going to break me the fuck down. And, you know, I think a certain part of that too changes how we, changes the rest of our mental health outlook as far as our moral, our moral fiber, our strength, our, you know, our courage, things like that. Because I've known you for a while now 
and Sienna and Zeke are very young and impressionable. And Sienna and Zeke, they know that their mom is sick, mm-hmm. but they're not. I mean, let's let's be real. They're, they don't know the full extent of what's going on because I know to a parent, we do not. That's the last thing we're going to do is accept our children to know the truth about exactly how close mom is, right? At any given second. No, they don't. They don't know that far. They know that she has cancer and where it's at. She has to go see the doctor and she gets appointments and treatment, but they don't know what the end result could be. And the reason why I bring that up, Trey, is not to put you on the spot, but to say that by doing that, you're also taking on two things. You're having to be, you have to put on an impersonation of being strong. When in fact, you're probably at one of your weakest points Mm -hmm. because that's your wife. That's, that's the love of your life, and you have to watch her endure this this pain, this this thing that is killing her. You have to watch it. You have to be strong for your kids, and two prong approach. You have to be strong for Mel because your strength gives her strength to fight it. Mm-hmm. So where is the strength left over for you? Exactly. And I believe exactly. that's why you are in the situation that you are in, my friend, with the with the you know with the board. Yep. And and. We're not going to, you know, go too in-depth of that. I'm just trying to put it into a perspective of there are different types of mental trauma out there, you know what I mean, that hang us up. And I guarantee you that certain things, when you go to the doctors, trigger you, trigger Mel, you know. But I'm glad that you talked about accepting. Now you and her accept the fact that things could go wrong. How does that make you feel? Like, after you accepted that fact, like, when you guys, like, how does it... Did it relieve anything from you? Did it make you feel more alienated? Did it make you feel more vulnerable? Did it, I mean, you know, because when I came home and I think my wife already knew I had PTSD, she's probably looking at me like, all right, tell me what I already know, idiot. Right. Cause you know, I, I, I acted like a douchebag a lot. So, and she knows what I went through in war and in my childhood. And I was very secretive of telling her specifics because again, all men don't want to be weak. We want to be strong. We want to be able to handle our own shit. Want to fix it. Yeah. It's our fucking problem. Right. So how did that change things? Did that change the dynamic of things? I think to a certain extent it did. And I always give that example when she had brain surgery. It was that initial shock for most of the day. And then once our parents came in and everything, we're just like, eh, it's just brain surgery, right? And it took that looming darkness over the whole situation. Yeah. I mean, that scare was there. We were still very scared and worried, but we made light of it as best as we could. Like, meh, whatever. And I don't know. I had this true faith inside me that everything was going to be fine. And usually I'm expecting the negative to happen to prepare myself. But I was good. I was like, it can be a long, hard surgery, but she's going to be all right. She's going to be fine. And I told her, you're going to be all right. And I really did mean it. Usually I say it just to make her feel better. Not knowing what the hell is going to happen, but I we really did feel at the time you're going to be all right, even though it's brain surgery. Thanks for sharing, Trey. I really appreciate it, man. It's not easy to talk about, especially when it comes to your family and yeah. being open. Um, same thing with me. Once I accepted the fact that I had PTSD, it was more like okay. Then things just started flowing. You know, we started doing worksheets on CPT. You know what I mean, and started diving into my trauma accounts and things like that, and then. Kelly started telling me about my triggers and 
I was like, oh shit. And a lot of light bulbs started going off and it started to make my life better. Yes, it was some growing pains involved because we slide back, you know what I mean, all the time. But it made things more chewable, should I say. And Palable. Yeah. And, you know, it was the definite changing tipping point that I needed to get help. And I think that the more people that take that first step of accepting the fact that they're seeing things from different lenses, that they have a mental illness, or that there's something that they need. You know what I mean? That, that initial step of diagnosis is crucial. It is the first foot forward that you need to take action. Yeah, I think so. I think that's true because you're in this unknown, like, man, that's, that's not me. You know, when people say something, but deep down you're like, is it me? Is that what's going on? And I think once you have like a professional that sits you down and you're like, so what I got, doc? Well, we think you have this, this, and this, and we're going to attack it this way. I think it does give you a certain acceptance and relief. Like, okay, that is the truth now. Like this is a professional that is telling you, writing it down in the chart, that this is what you have. Yeah, not living in a line no more. Yeah. So that bubble's gone. So in conclusion, right, we're getting into this uh, final moment here of my concluding thought and point of view. So after talking to and, and really getting into this, the stigma of diagnosis is not an easy path once you make yourself vulnerable. Um, much like a wounded animal, I think we become defensive and protective of ourselves. This is a natural reaction to ward off any type of, of threat or attack. If you're trying to get better, then you must allow yourself to sit in your vulnerable state and actually receive someone else's help. Diagnosis is not losing any part of yourself. It is merely raising your hand like you have done previously in life and accepting to be brave and take the first step forward into an unknown situation. I really think that accepting the fact uh, that you will not be the same person when it's when it's over, but you'll be a better version of yourself, refined and honed with the critical self-awareness that the triggers and habits you have demonstrated prior to the diagnosis may have brought uh, brought on value and self-worth. Um, take the first step. What do you have to lose? Simply nothing. We'll walk with you through the fight. We're here to come and so will the other 42,999,999 people in this country diagnosed with a mental illness. Yeah, we're all here to help. And I've, we've all learned that the hard way. We have never said that it's easy to come out and ask for the help or talk to somebody. But we both know it better be somebody that's going through the same shit as you. Because if not, we're going to turn them away. Pretty damn easy. Um, Absolutely. Well, everybody, I had to take a moment of, of thought right there because that's real deep. Thanks, Trey. Everybody out there, have a good week for you in the fight. Let's get it.